Hello once again, Design Dedux Podcast listeners. It has been a while since we've released a podcast episode, and I would like to, first of all, say my apologies, and I'd also like to say thank you for being a dedicated listener and staying tuned in. I don't think there is one specific thing that has kept me away from the podcast. Nonetheless, as we all try to continue on and march forward, so is the podcast. On this episode, we hear from Brockett Horn and Louise Sandhouse as they talk about the People's Graphic Design Archive. The material is a few months old, however, it's really great to hear them talk about the process and the path to building the archives. We also take some time to talk about Redesigning Her Story, the documentary film that Amanda Horton and I are working on, and we want to let you know that that is still in the process. We're continuing work on that. Although slow due to the pandemic, we are still moving forward, and we hope to have more information regarding the documentary film. Well, we've heard enough from me, so now let's dive into the podcast and listen to Brockett and Louise as they talk about the People's Graphic Design Archive and Women in Graphic Design. Welcome back to another episode of Design DDoc's podcast. I am here with Mandy. Again, we're talking a little bit more about the redesigning her story and uh, women in graphic design. And today we have with us Louise and Brockett, and they are... Uh, co-partnering, co-working on a collaborative project that we're going to talk about here, the Graphic Design Archive. But we're going to get more into that in just a little bit. But before we start, I'd like to get uh, some introductions and some brief backgrounds, if we could, um, and talk a little bit about your involvement in graphic design and graphic design history. Uh, Louise, would you like to kick that off? Sure. So, you know, just talking about my background and my involvement in graphic design history, um, first of all, I, I want to mention Lorraine Wilde at CalArts, who I, I went when I was a little sort of, you know, a number of years into my career, I went back to grad school because I knew I wanted to teach. And I was fortunate enough to have a historical survey of graphic design with Lorraine Wilde. So she really expanded my perspective about design history. Um, and she's somebody who doesn't teach a conventional trajectory, but there's much more eclectic work in her course. Um, so that really opened my eyes to a broader idea of design history. Um, then uh, as I began to flourish as an exhibition designer, uh, the, 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 an exhibition that I worked on was made in California, Art, Image, and Identity, 1900 to 2000, for the LA County Museum of Art. I saw that there was a moment at which these California artists had decided to reject the lineage from New York and before that Europe, and to define on their own terms what was California art. And I began to think, what was California graphic design? And that's what led me on this pathway of trying to discover and understand what was California graphic design. So that's that's kind of my background. As it pertains okay. to my interest and trajectory in graphic design history. So um, you're actively teaching. I am. And, and where, where are you teaching out of? I teach at CalArts, or California Institute of the Arts, and that's in Valencia, California, which is uh, within L.A. County. It's considered greater Los Angeles. So it's about 30 miles 
uh, north of downtown Los Angeles. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And how long have you been teaching? Have you been teaching there your entire career? So I started my career in the 1970s. I uh, was a practicing graphic designer uh, until I began to think about design as a cultural practice. I was in Boston at the time. Uh, I was friends with Muriel Cooper and what she was doing there with what was to become the Visual Language Workshop at MIT and began to think about how computers were going to impact uh, the practice. And so I was teaching at the Art Institute of Boston, you know, just teaching one class there. And so everything, all the handwriting was on the wall for me to step back um, to go to graduate school at that point. And uh, so I went to grad school from 1992 to 1994 at CalArts, then went on to get further grad education at the Jan van Eyck Academy in Maastricht in the Netherlands, and then came back uh, to Los Angeles and started teaching then. So I've been teaching since 1996 at CalArts. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. That's a great career. And I'm sure you've seen all kinds of change, you know, through that through that time as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> including yeah. like just like not even recognizing the the field anymore or the, or the profession or the discipline. Mm -hmm. It's gotten so much larger um, over that, that time, um, what designers do, how they do it, who calls right, themselves right. a graphic designer, all of that. Yeah, I've had those same thoughts and even trying to define graphic design and then even using the term graphic design today is, you know, you kind of start scratching your head and wonder about the terminology and, and what it's changing into. Uh, Brockett, what about yourself? A little background and how you got into, into teaching? Sure. I'm um, Brockett. I'm teaching at MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. And I've been teaching um, design history really for over a decade now. The fever kind of got me when I was an undergraduate and my program was very modernist in nature. And I think it was the history classes that kind of helped me figure out how to bridge formal abstraction with applicability. I think it was through the history classes that I understood how all of the formal exercises we were doing in studio classes, how they could be applied and how they could solve problems. Um, here at MICA, my team teach two relevant courses with Ellen Lupton. I think you had Ellen on the podcast recently, which is great. Yes, we have. Yeah. We teach um, graphic design history, which is required for sophomores, and <coughs> design theory and practice, which is required for seniors. And I really adore the challenge of kind of redefining and, and reshaping those courses every semester. We're um, always trying to make them more relevant and more inclusive. I think of it like a garden that's constantly being like reorganized and ripped out. Um, I studied with Doug Scott at RISD um, and I, I really marveled at how he approached teaching history because he went way out of bounds from the textbook. And um, it, was, it was really um, curious to me, I, I was, curious where he was getting the information that he was or how he was finding these narratives that didn't seem like they were anywhere else. They weren't in the design press and they weren't in any of the textbooks that we were using. 
And I think that he was um, doing a lot of traveling. I know he does a lot of yard sales and like eBay finds. And I find that to still be really relevant for how we shape and think about what graphic design history is. Like, where do you find it? It's not always in a textbook. Right. Um, and then I think sort of to up my game recently, I went back to graduate school and I did a master's degree at Bard Graduate Center where I worked with Freya Hartzell and Paul Sturton. And Freya in particular has been really influential for me because she uses a lot of fiction um, for thinking about how history has been shaped and contextualizing it. And so for me, looking broader, you know, drawing a large kind of field around how we can find sources, both primary and secondary sources to inform our research has been um, delightful and a really fun part of how I'm thinking about what I teach. Wow, that's, a, that's exciting. Yeah, I've got, all of a sudden I want to ask you all kinds of questions about <laughs> about that the context of, of, it, of uh, Doug Scott, Ooh. correct? Uh, his teaching of history graphic design and then how that's affected your, your teaching of that and what that classroom looks like. But um, I, I could get way off on a coffee <laughs> coffee time discussion yeah into the weeds on that um that's fantastic uh mandy so you all just launched a a pretty exciting project and that's what we one of the things we want to talk to you about today today um the people's graphic design archive can you tell us a little bit about that project and where how did the project come about where did it originate so just really gonna, quickly before you jump in, Louise, I was just going to say it's important to note that we have a third collaborator. Yes, yes. yes. thank you. Thank you. Is, Very important. Uh, Briar Levitt. So if you don't know her work, um, check it out. She's got an amazing um, range of expertise. And I yes. think actually you'll probably talk to her under a different project. But Louise, you should tell the story. Yeah, we do have uh, <laughs> we, we do have Brockett or whew, oh, my gosh, names. We do have Briar. We do it too. It's okay. Yeah. We do have Briar uh, scheduled to be on the podcast as well. So we're going to have a conversation with her. So that's going to be coming up. Great, great. Um, so I do want to mention, you know, that the project has really taken off in a huge way since Briar and Brockett joined me as partners in the, in the project. Um, yeah, I was getting overwhelmed doing it alone. It was hard to move forward. So number one, as, as you both know, like doing a project with somebody else is just, there's a vitality to it. Um, you need somebody to keep you going, <laughs> to keep the, the wind yep. at your back, um, and to bring all kinds of skills and perspectives. So mm -hmm. that's been, that's been really important. But the archive started when I did the exhibition that I talked about at the LA County Museum of Art, Maine, California, that's what ended up leading to earthquakes, mudslides, fires, and riots, Californian graphic design, 1936 to 1986, my book about California graphic design. But that book is what I call a crumb of a crumb of a crumb because I realized how much material was actually out there. Um, material that for time purposes, I wasn't able to cover. Um, some things were on the cutting room floor, but other things I didn't have the time to follow up on. Also how deep I would go, you know, but I realized that there were just a lot of designers out there sitting on a lot of material, their own and the material of others that it is expensive 
to archive that material, to maintain it, to take care of it, to make it accessible. So a lot of this material was simply going to end up in the dumpster. And all this history was just going to disappear and go away. <clears throat> a, so a side note. Uh, side note, we just were um, we just had a recent podcast with Gail Anderson, and we were talking a little bit about her uh, work right. and the boxes, the totes of her own work that she has just stored at her house. Right. And she's like, you know, she'll probably uh, donate it to an archive, but she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this stuff. Or and it's just interesting right. that you you mentioned that and how much work is out there that the designers or the agencies or the firms have. And there comes a time when you've got to kind of go through that stuff and decide what to do with it. So it is a shame and it's amazing how much of that stuff doesn't end up in an archive and it doesn't right. end up in the trash. You know? Right, exactly, exactly. So when the L.A. County Museum of Art announced that it was going to start collecting design, graphic design, I was, because I was like impassioned about California graphic design and what was in Los Angeles, you know, it struck me, well, what would be included uh, in their collection? Because it could only be what was known about. And so I thought, okay, what's an emergency measure here? <laughs> it's not going to be perfect. This stuff isn't going to be like in, in a collection. It's not going to be an archive. It's not going to be perfectly maintained. But somehow there needs to be a record. Uh, that's when it struck me. Okay, crowdsourcing, virtual archive, you know, it's sort of from the idea of a, like a Wikipedia, you know, that a lot of people could contribute. Now, Wikipedia is only, you know, text really, very few images. So it's kind of inverting that. This is more image-based. I do want to um, emphasize that this is, an archive or what might be better called a repository. So a collection is really like finished work. And for somebody to be able to understand how and why something was done, um, they need all the records there. And especially for researchers who are researching design. And what I have, and now is finally getting uploaded to the People's Graphic Design Archive, are folders and folders of both physical material, but a lot of digital material, <clears throat> excuse me, that I scanned. Um, and so these are the important records for anybody who would be doing research. And so it's getting those into the archive, not just these finished projects. So I think that kind of gives you some background on where it originated from. Yeah, I was going to ask, I know Mandy's got a follow-up question, but I'm going to, I, I wanted to ask about um, the work itself. Do you have, you have physical works as well as digital works then as part of, as part of the archive? No physical works. Okay. There's no place for them to go. No, no place for them to be stored. Okay, so right. it's, it's just digital submissions uh, currently. Yeah, yes, I mean... Uh, it's hard for me to imagine right now <laughs> when so many organizations are struggling how the preservation of this material would get increased, except that certain things will become more visible and they'll become more valuable because of that. So, and as history broadens, there may be institutions like the LA County Museum of Art that recognize things that they don't want physically to go away. 
Right, right. Okay. Um, so who can submit work uh, to it and what kind of work is included? Is it, you know, are there limitations included. or restrictions? Yeah. yeah sh- what should be included? Yabraka, you want to jump on that one? Sure. Um, anybody can submit. I think that, you know, part of our concept is to make archiving and collecting as accessible as possible and removing barriers to who can be an archivist or who, you know, who is credentialed to um, preserve valuable objects. Um, and we, we often say like our goal is like not perfection, but preservation. So um, we're really at this point trying to map out things that we feel like should be collected, so to speak. Um, and we're particularly looking for work from researchers or people who are embarking on their own independent project and they might be able to weave larger narratives about objects that relate to each other or connect them to other projects, films like yours, right, podcasts. Um, other publications, we're, we're interested in that. And to Louise's point, I think it's really important to um, collect objects that kind of tell the story, not just of how design was um, finished, but also how it was created, how it was conceived, maybe um, how it's been distributed or consumed, right? Because I think, you know, those are stories that we don't have a lot of information about. I think some of the objects like do point to physical collections that exist in some repository. We don't have a repository, but like for me, for example, I've been uploading objects that I have that I've been researching or looking at um, that I take photos of with my cell phone or scans and upload them into the archive um, that are in the collection of Brockett Horn, um, not a fancy museum. Right. So I was going to ask, like, just following up along those lines. So I have some collections of um, children's books who I think the illustrations are amazing. Is that something that could go into it? Or is there a strict line between illustration and graphic design? I don't think we really distinguish that. I mean, this is what's important here is that this is the community that decides what should be part of history. And this goes, I want to expand on this question of what work should be included and who should upload. Like we want to encourage anybody to to upload something that they think should be part of graphic design history that has been overlooked. If you go to Google (laughs) and you go to Pinterest, you will find tons of stuff and it just keeps getting reiterated and regenerated as the story of graphic design history. We're trying to dislocate that narrative. We're trying to hopefully create a much broader understanding of what's been part of this history and what belongs as part of this history. So by getting anybody to decide what should be part of this history is what's what's vital. Um, and that may be a single item or somebody's entire research. But the hope is, as Brockett was explaining, is to generate new narratives about graphic design history. And I want to emphasize there is not a graphic design history. There are histories of graphic design. It's a literary act and it's narratives. So there's different stories to be told based on different perspectives, point of views, um, interests, like all of that, but you've got to have the material 
um, that, as I call, it's the ingredients that will allow somebody to cook them into some tasty, consumable treat. Well, it, yeah. it sounds like you're actually even trying to create a culture of archiving, right? So encouraging students and everyone to participate. That's that's like, let's create this culture where everyone participates in the archive. Yeah, I mean, it. Um, yes, it's definitely participatory. It's definitely we're encouraging people to not just consume history, but to practice making history. Okay. I think it's, I, I, I really found it interesting how you were talking a little bit about Pinterest or even, you know, Google search and Pinterest. And even if you come across something that you find, whether it's on a, a research on design history or inspiration for a design project, especially on Pinterest, where it came from and how many mm how many links deep it goes to the original resource is so uh, unknown and right. it's so ambiguous to who posted it that I and I have um, the People's Archive open on my other uh, monitor and I, I keep reviewing that. Um, and it seems like that's what you're trying to eliminate is that ambiguity as to what a thing even is. And there's all this work out there that just is floating around without any kind of uh, definitive facts uh, to it or, or resources. And this uh, really gets down to um, the, the actual work and the actual creators. Because I've even seen stuff on Pinterest that's posted under people's names. And and I definitely know that that's not where it belongs. And it just yeah. gets kind of wishy-washy, kind of sometimes like, a, you know, Wikipedia can. Um, yeah, so that's just really interesting. I'm sorry, I just kind of got off on that. Uh, I no, do... but it will be. I mean, we'll talk about it more, you know, I'm sure as we go along in this conversation. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there there are those kinds of attribution issues uh, that we're going to have to address. Right. But it is a community. And like Wikipedia, things are people contribute to the record. And people challenge what's been said as well. All right. Okay. So I actually think that that leads us to Pete's question. So I'm going to, even though I had the next question, I'm going to let Pete go ahead with his. Oh, sure. Um, running into issues with crowdsourcing and archiving. Um, do you guys fact check the information? That's got to be a lot of work. Yeah. Rocket, do you want to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what I mean, are some maybe of the... we're just getting to that point, I think, right? I mean, Louise, maybe it would be good to talk about the um, design roadshows. Yeah, well, I want to I want to address this question. It is a I, it is a community. It's the community. It's the commons, and so you know we are just getting started, um, and we will hope to have an editor in place that will push the final upload button. So well, what's, why we want this to be as direct as possible in terms of people being able to make contributions. We also wanna mm. make sure that it's respectful of the community guidelines that we have. And so that person may note that something is inaccurate 
but again, it's probably going to have to be the community that that says, "Wait, wait a minute! I think something's off here. Mm-hmm. Let's 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 fix this." We do, we are definitely um, well. We are, you know, we have an eye towards that. We don't have the bandwidth, uh, the three of us right now, to like everything that's posted there to fact check it. We are trusting the the community. Now, if there's something that really concerns us, we may do a little investigation. Mm-hmm. But that's about as far as we can go right now. Yeah. Can so I, when you can when I add you, to that? Yeah, go ahead, Brockett. I was just going to say it kind of relates to your question or your statement that I love, uh, Mandy, earlier about the culture of an archive, right? How do you change that? I think what's happening now more than um, errors of fact is just that there are incomplete records. So um, someone might upload something. I'll think, oh, gosh, I know three or four things about that. Or that relates to this other thing that's already been uploaded. Um, And I think that those kinds of questions might actually strengthen the community because it might provide space for an expert or somebody who knows a little bit of the story to connect two or three objects or two or three stories or narratives in new ways. And I think that's what's so exciting about this kind of project, um, that you can, we can trust the community. And I do feel like um, there's opportunities for uh, dialogue kind of just existing in the way the archive is constructed. Well, even, you know, I've seen and been involved in a number of student projects that have, in, that have involved the development of the archive. And so here's a project that could be assigned to students where they actually have to fact check something or connect it to something else that's on the archive. So that's a way for them to get involved in the practice of design history, of making design history, and again, not consuming it, and contributing to making this larger and more valuable record that's also factually accurate. Okay. So I think that leads me to my question, which is, um, how do you see this resource being used? And I think you've already given a few hints to this as we've been talking, but if you want to elaborate on that a little bit more, I would love it. Yeah, you want to talk? I mean, more research, right? Like mm-hmm. hopefully more research, um, design inspiration. Um, there are huge applications for education. Right now I'm trying to think of some um, lesson plans or project ideas we can share with our faculty colleagues. Ooh, that's a great um, idea who might be able to use it as we're planning, you know, as we were talking before about the fall semester. Um, And I'm hoping, and we see this, right, the summer of 2020, there's like a lightning bolt interest in history and how narratives of history are told, like in general. And I think that a project like this can really fuel more interest in shaping um, historical narratives. So more research would be the ideal outcome. Can can we walk through... um the submission then and then how the information gets updated. So on peoplesarchive.org, there is a submit button where we can just quickly kind of submit and fill out the information. So that's pretty self-explanatory. But what happens to it after that? Well, right now I do want to give the address. It's it's peoplesgd, as in graphic oh, design, archive.org. So um, you can upload the images, you know, you put in the data, 
And then right now, so I want to explain that the archive is a prototype that's been built on the platform Notion, which is a kind of a database wiki-like platform. That okay. material will be exported. All the data that we're gathering, which is exportable, will be exportable to the finished platform, which we are developing with the fonts and use folks. So there's the fonts and use is a crowdsourced platform. They've done it. They've done it successfully. So they're going to be developing the People's Graphic Design Archive platform. And Wonderful. so we're, we're going to need that. And then it's just pushing a button to upload. Right now, in our prototype, which from which not only are we gathering all this material, but we're learning tons and tons um, about you know what people are contributing, where the where the snags are, um, you know how people understand the fields, like all of this we're learning um, as people are contributing to the the prototype people's graphic design archive. So when people contribute on our website, it actually goes to an Excel document. And then it does have to be manually uploaded. Okay. So we're only going to be able to sustain that for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so in the fall, you're going to see our Kickstarter campaign to raise the funds to actually build the platform. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Well, how does something get edited then? So, you know, like we were talking earlier how um, it could be a student project in history of graphic design where they go in and they fact check some of the information. So if, if someone finds something that's incorrect, what's the process to, to address that? Louis, I mean, Louise, jump in at any point, but yes. I, mean, I think it's important to note, like, we, there's a team of us, you know, there are the three of us, and then we also have a, a, amazing interns, outstanding team of interns, David, Sarah, and Yura, and um, we keep a document of questions and concerns that we meet weekly to talk about, so I think if you were looking at the archive today and you found something that you wanted to challenge, you could just email us and we could look into it. But now I think we have the benefit of a small like um, campfire kind of a discussion weekly to sort of look through um, and kind of question, oh, okay, this might be better if we did it that way. Or this, maybe there's a better resolution image, right? Just to try to um, make it as use useful as possible. What would you add, yeah. Louise? Well, I'd say, um, yeah, that somebody would have to reach us out to us now and let us know that that is incorrect, and here's why. But when the site is built, then it should be much more easier, easy <laughs> to mm -hmm. actually change a fact. Right, right. Um, like you're it saying, still has to prototype. go through an editor, yeah. but you know, it's just like right now, there's a lot of manual labor involved, <laughs> so we need yeah. to get past that. So like in Wikipedia, there are people who are editors who can go in and change records. You know, and that and those okay. those editors yeah. come from the community. It's such an amazing endeavor. It's such a huge undertaking that I, that I'm sure as you're working through the prototype, all of those things and all of uh, the different emails that you've been getting is are things that you guys are addressing and you know working the working the kinks out. And, and yeah, right. I do want to emphasize that even though 
this is the prototype, a very functioning prototype of the site. Um, I've been working on this since 2015. Wow. And yeah, and so this this just didn't pop up in the last couple of months. Right, right. And a Doesn't... lot of people have contributed to this project, a lot of people, um, in all kinds of capacities. And I've also been working with students to test different aspects of the archive. Um, everything from, from the crowdsourcing aspects to what students might do in terms of a contribution to design history. Uh, so, uh, I've worked, we've worked with archivists to understand how to, um, describe the work. So all the fields that you see that are completed. Um, we've done various, uh, stints with the groups of advisors, um, who are either design historians or design educators, design, uh, writers about design history. So many people have been involved uh, giving us feedback. And I also want to mention our Design History Friday group. Uh, Brockett, do you want to talk about Design History Friday? Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, so Design History Friday, um, Silas Monroe, who was a, a, a student of mine and now very accomplished as a design educator and a graphic design historian um, who worked most, uh, I think is probably more widely, most widely recognized for the essay he contributed to the W.E.B. Du Bois Data Portraits book that came out uh, about uh, probably about two years ago from Princeton Architectural Press. And uh, he and I were trying to think of ways in which we could be supported in what were huge endeavors having to do with design history and get the feedback that we needed to develop our projects. Um, and before I knew it, um, Silas had kind of launched a, a group that would meet online. At the time, it was like Google Meet Meetups or whatever they're calling it, Google Hangouts. And uh, next thing you know, um, we probably have about 80 people now. I think you both have presented various ideas, and it's it is the it is um, you know the microcosm of what we hope the community for the the People's Graphic Design Archive is, but a community. So it's a community and it's great because we see all this um, disruption going on, all this energy going on, and all this amazing research going on that is transforming how we understand graphic design history, who's part of this, who's talked about, how they're part of, how they're talked about, and what is relevant and meaningful, meaning about the work itself. Right. This leads right into Mandy's question for sure. So um, the next thing I really want to talk to you about is both about, <clears throat> excuse me, is the value of graphic design history. And um, can you share us a little bit about your thoughts about the value, the importance of graphic design history? And then um, do you think it's problematic that some design programs do not offer instruction in graphic design history? Okay, Brock. <laughs> <laughs> jump in, jump in at any point. I guess, I mean, Louise already mentioned this, but I see that there are like multiple histories. Um, there are, you know, plural ways that we can think about graphic design histories rather than one. 
um, and I'm a practitioner, so I have a certain lens kind of of looking at this. And I guess I'm, I'm particularly excited about when history um, provides continuity for the practitioner's work or for a student to see the things that they're making, how they relate to this larger evolution or at least, um, you know, range of ideas. And I'm particularly interested in how we can embed history into studio studio courses, studio programs, rather than kind of isolating into like, here's the history course, or here's the place where you learn about history with, you know, within this confined 15 weeks or what have you, this textbook. So for me, I'm kind of interested in um, ways that we can tell lots of different narratives in different ways and apply them to certain things that students have to learn and, and things that practitioners want to learn or want to challenge. Um, particularly in this age or this era when we're rewriting risk, rewriting history and um, fervently trying to tell the stories that are untold or bring forward the things that were forgotten. Um, and also to tell why those stories weren't told or why those stories have been forgotten or why they've been eclipsed by other larger, louder narratives that might not be better or more interesting, but for whatever reason have persisted. Um, so, yeah, I do think it would be problematic for a program not to have any history, but I would challenge that that even exists, because for me, I think it must be super hard to teach typography or uh, UX design or anything like that without talking about how it relates to, you know, the larger trends and changes in the field. Right. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I think Brockett said so much and so perfectly. I mean, I would just say, you know, that, for students, I mean, understanding that design doesn't exist in a vacuum. It didn't just appear, you know, 10 minutes ago or on Instagram, <laughs> that it's gone back a ways and that people have, for various reasons, and here what, here's how in many ways for me, it's hard to separate like theory and history, like what has driven the ideas that have shaped the way things have looked um, for as long as thing, for, as long as visual communication has taken place, you know, part of it we know is technology, and part of it is conceptual ideas, and sometimes they leapfrog over one another. So a new technology emerges, or a new recognition of the culture, you know, like like modern design and kind of like uh, its response um, to things that were going on politically, but also right. just trying to respond to the speed at which things were moving, that information needed to be taken in more quickly. So all of these things have shaped and um, reshaped why things are made, how they look, what they mean, all of that um, is this lineage that it's hard to talk about things today without um, referencing that in some way. But I think that there is also, you know, we've all seen students get like super excited when they look at stuff from the past, you know, and so it's like important for them to like have that, that energy and, and excitement that they can see, you know, we forget that they don't see stuff, <laughs> you know, that they want to see, oh my God, you know, this work was really amazing. And I want to be as amazing in the things that I create. And that also 
that, that so many of these people, and we remember them today because they did things that kind of broke from their own past, you know, that they were responding to their own era. So hopefully right. that encourages students not to come up with a pre- um, a preordained idea of what graphic design should look like, and they realize that it's responding to so many different factors. Right. I, I often find myself, you know, listening to stories in the news and how the world is changing and shaping it right now and think, how is this going to shape design? How, what, yeah. what transitions are we going to see as a result of that? Yeah. Um, so, just to kind of focus in on the, the documentary film for a little bit, if you don't mind, we're asking all of our guests um, this question in some form or another, because all of our guests, for the most part, are our target audience. So we want to know what you think, what you would like to see addressed in an un upcoming documentary film about women in graphic design history. You know, in your opinion, what are some of the relevant issues? What, what needs to be covered? Okay, you want to launch? this one as well? Yeah, maybe, and I can try to weave it into what y'all were just saying. We know now more than ever that representation is so important. And we know that um, students can be inspired by history. And so it's essential for them to see themselves in that or for them to understand like where they fit within that construct. And if they can't see themselves or find themselves in that for whatever reason, you know, if their stories are untold, if their stories are buried if they aren't if they're absent i think um you know that your project is so important because there are so many um women identifying design students and for them to be able to see themselves in this larger concept concept will be really um you know essential for how they plan their careers and how they think about their features in in the creative industry yeah i mean i, th I think that's a, a great answer bracket that um you know i it's been an issue for so long <laughs> and i just remember like uh i don't know probably like five years ago like aiga wanted me to do a panel here in los angeles to moderate a panel here in Los Angeles, and they had these numbers, and I've never been able to get where these numbers came from. So um, I think it's 70% of all design students are women. 60% of the profession is women. But 11% of those, of, um, are creative directors. In other words, they're in leadership positions. So this panel was driven by that disparity. I don't know if those numbers have changed or how they've changed. Um, I think with all the loud voices now, we're probably beginning to see that. But I had thought that we were an enlightened practice, you know, an enlightened profession. I was shocked to hear these numbers. I thought that this was maybe the one place where feminism had a foothold, and particularly because of how many women were or were um, being educated into the practice. Um, so it was disturbing. And what was even more disturbing was hearing 
in this event the personal stories and tears from uh, people who were attending, women who were attending, how they were being treated in the workplace, um, the, um, the sexism, um, their inability to rise um, uh, in uh, where they were working. Um, so it's, it's kind of shocking. So I think part of telling more of the stories that have been suppressed for so long of the contributions. Now, what I'm not clear about at all is were there women there that were, uh, again, you know, put into roles that might have been more technical because they weren't able to elevate their positions? And how much have they just not been talked about? Right. So um, that I don't know. That will be interesting to discover. But, you know, it was funny, you know, to talk to the other women on these on this panel um, to hear these stories that are still going on today um, and to um, recognize that. um, Excuse me. Sorry. Hold on. Sure. Sure. Okay. so I, I think the other thing that I wanted to talk about was when I um, entered the profession, which, which was in the 70s, um, and psychologically how we thought of ourselves. And we're hearing more and more mm-hmm. of this, I think, today. Yeah, this that, was going to be my question, actually, is if yeah. you've experienced, you know, any of that disparity in your professional career. But it, I, I want to reorient that. Sure. You're, you, you internalize a certain narrative, you know, or I think that many of us did. And I think just now that that narrative is really getting talked about, um, there was something I think was in the New York Times about this or oh I know what it was. There's a discussion going on in on Twitter right now about that internal narrative that I think women, I'm guessing that some uh, people of color, began to internalize about them being unequal. You know that they were not part of um, the elements of power that they um, were not equal to men, um, that men were smarter, white men were smarter, <laughs> um, that they knew better, that they should be given the, that place and position of authority. So the acknowledgement, the recognition now of the situation is very different from how it was when I began working in that in the field. I don't know how, you know, how much this was me, you know, how much it was like universally experienced. And I don't know how much um, that narrative is, is still internalized. Yeah, I think that's a, um, an excellent way to kind of break that down a little bit. Um, because for what an individual has experienced or feeling uh, or as far as their internal processing of something, mm-hmm. as as to the larger uh, societal context of it, uh, and what that group of people is experiencing, are they in that group? Are they outside the norm? Are they, you know, 
is that the typical understanding? So there's a lot of those interesting variables that Mandy and I will will try to dig into a little bit more to kind of um, work through that through some of our discussions. We've had some women designers that haven't felt any disparity in their professional career. And then yes. we've had others yeah. that are mm-hmm. uh, I- explain some very uh, shocking uh, experiences. So, you know, it is interesting to find out, you know, maybe what's behind some of that, um, as well as to share those stories um, along with that. In that vein of conversation, do you, what kind of potential problems do you think going through this research um, or presenting in a documentary film like this could be something that you see that, you know, could be issues or concerns? Sure. We always get that moment yeah. of, of, of silence when we ask that question. Um, two reasons. There's a lot of them. And then how do you start to talk about how do you start to talk about them? So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, how do you just not rehash, you know, you know, so I think that there's, you know, as I've kind of alluded to, there's a lot of complex factors. Um, to, to understand here about what I've called this internal narrative, um, you know, in the same way that that there's been a kind of social hierarchy, you know, we look at that as being so evil now. Um, we understand now how that, that, um, is behind so much disparity and so much pain. But it was seen, you know, as as natural. The natural order of things. Right. And that's that's like that is that seems unfathomable right now. And I do wanna I do wanna bring up and that I um um grew up in the South. Um it was you know, and again, there were these hierarchies. I was, I am and was Jewish at the time, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. So while I was not experiencing the full brutal force of what um, people of color experience, um, still I, you know, that, that, that history um, is part of one of the experience of exclusion um, at the time in the South, uh, Jewish people weren't allowed in certain, we weren't allowed to be members of certain clubs. Uh, we weren't allowed in certain hotels. Uh, so, um, you know, the, again, it's, it's this, it's this very complex history of people who are excluded and why they're excluded and the narrative that was told about a natural hierarchy of peoples. So I think that what what you're doing is trying to change and correct that that record uh, to show uh, that there were many people doing things and contributing in different ways. And how do you honor that? So how do you do that without putting it on the same terms that you are talking about how contributions to design that have been um, 
traditionally <laughs> talked about in terms of men's contributions. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about intersectional feminism right now, right? And I think um, I'm really excited to see how you're going to address that in this project. I think it's such a significant topic and um, it's layered. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's you and, you know, we have to be careful and sensitive and uh and, and inclusive and um i you know everyone i hear a lot of people say this um but i want to repeat it um feminism is intersectional and we need to remember that everybody needs to remember that so absolutely this the film is going to be intersectional how we're going to work all of that in i'm not entirely sure yet we're yeah. still planning still figuring things out well, yeah, that's been a big part of our discussion. You know, a typical documentary film is about an hour and 20 minutes uh, or so. And I really wanted to try to keep it within um, the amount of time where uh, it is keeping in mind um, a classroom session on history, right? So it can be shown in one sitting, you know, as opposed to be broken up. Um, and we're really quickly discovering the limitations of an hour and 20 minutes to tell a story <laughs> that's so complex as this. Um, so that's going to, it, it'll be interesting to kind of work that through. Right. And I, I'm kind of reminded of something that Louise said at the very beginning when she was talking about um, the transition from the book project to the, the People's Graphic Design Archive is like, you know, some of the things from the book ended up on the cutting room floor. And I'm very cognizant of, you know, where some of these things are going to end up on the cutting room floor and how, you know, how do we... How do we make those calls and those decisions? And that's one of the and reasons you why we add the rest to the people's archive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love All that right, you're well, imagining it. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, was going to say, I love that you're imagining your uh, film in a classroom, right? Or, or um, I think that's generous. And I appreciate that opportunity too, because I'm imagining not just your film, but the conversations that my class is going to have after or around it or the readings that I'm going to attach onto it or the ways that we're going to be able to unpack it. So maybe you don't have to do it all in 120 minutes. And that's a good text, right? Like a good text yeah. doesn't tell you everything. It just sets your imagination on fire and provides right. an opportunity for discussion um, and helps people understand complexities through dialogue. So, um, you know. Think of it more of a conversation starter in an hour and 20 right. minutes. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to challenge you. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say, so I've been thinking about this for several years about like, you know, when uh, various, you know, academic publishers, you know, might reach out and want me to review a new history book um, or, you know, take a look at it or whatever. And I'm thinking, okay, well, this chapter might, maybe I do something with that or this one piece in that book, you know, it's not just history books, just books. And it's like, hey, just like divide this up into a bunch of PDFs and I'm just gonna take what I need from A, B, C, D, and E. And so as you're, you know, we're these history books, you know, Meg's being the most popular now are getting challenged. That doesn't mean we need to throw the whole thing out, but how somebody might develop the narrative may be different from how somebody else needs to develop the narrative. 
So I'm wondering if you, and I want to back up to some history of the Earthquakes book. Originally, I imagined it as um, it was going to start with four books that were glued back to cover to suggest that there could be endless books. So I'm just wondering if you guys might want to think about like narratives, individual narratives or chunks that can be assembled based on the, what the educator needs. You know, maybe you suggest orders depending on what kind of a class or what kind of context, but don't, um, maybe, maybe that allows more latitude and also suggests that more can be added, more is to come. And so you don't have to worry about what ends up on that cutting room floor. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an approach that's got me thinking a few things for consideration. I like that. Yeah. But plus you're working in the documentary format too, so you're telling a truth, right? Or you're Right. Yes. Is that true? <laughs> that is true. Ho yes. Hopefully. <laughs> um, right, so I right. have one, one final question for you. Um, do you guys have any other research you'd like to talk to us about beyond the archive? We've focused mostly on the archive today. Um, you know, your own research that you want to talk about or share and, and specifically anything that might tie into this project that we should be aware of. I often think about this stuff, you know, particularly with the section of, of my book on on the California girls, the girls that didn't make it in, the ones, mm -hmm. you know, there's still a story to tell, <laughs> the, the ones I'm stumbling on, um, you know, so there's, there's this kind of frustration, <laughs> you know, while I'm doing this like big project, I still want to like dive into certain things um, and just go deeper and understand more about who this person was and the work that they created. Um, uh, there's a, the, the person who taught Corita Kent, um, sister Mary Magdalene, if I have her name right. Um, I think she, she did some pretty interesting things, um, but she's not, she's not been talked about. Um, Margaret Larson, who I is kind of known, but I think uh, a lot of, uh, about her disappeared. Um, so I'm actually working on an essay for Breyer's upcoming book that she may have talked to you about or is talking to you about. Um, so yeah, there's this, this urge to go deeper with, with so many things. And it's kind of frustrating not, not having enough time. As, as Jerry Kavanaugh said, you know, she needs more lifetimes. One lifetime is not enough. Right, right. Brockett, how about yourself? Well, I would just say, like, um, lately I've been doing a lot of the social media um, planning for the People's Archive of Graphic Design. And so I have the joy of kind of sifting through and thinking, what is Instagrammable? Or, you know, what would be relevant? Um, and so I have... My immediate response is I have like 30 papers I want to write about these little objects that <laughs> mm, <laughs> have yes, been posted yeah. on Instagram. But I'm kind of trying to check myself or challenge myself, as I mentioned earlier, what kinds of work can result from reimagining archives. 
So I'm really inspired by designers who are doing neat work, not just ne not necessarily writing, but other creative projects in response to archives. And I'm kind of hoping to shake out some visual research, some formal experiments, some kind of design projects as, as a response to the things that are happening in the archive, not just writing. Well, that um, sounds exciting. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that'll shake out, but that's kind of what I've been thinking about now. That sounds excellent. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to come back and ask you some of the um, uh, social media, like where people can find some of some of those. But before we do, we're, I love doing a moment where we get some words of uh, words of wisdom, words of advice. Um, so, to, whether it's to students, young designers, young professionals, or even the aged professionals for that matter, um, Louise, would you like to go first with that? What would you like to leave the listeners with? Well, um, I mean, I'm not sure there's anything that I haven't said, you know, which is about like students feeling empowered to not just consume history, but recognize that they can also do research themselves and contribute to history in different ways. Um, I particularly for grad students. I think for undergrad students, maybe they look at, at people that they may be familiar with and think about what story they might want to tell about those people. Because there is, you know, to get the factual information can be a, a huge project. Um, so I guess, I guess I would say that, that that's, that's the inspiration. I would also say for those people who um, have careers and you know, who, whose work is, should be part of an archive, you know, to think about how they preserve that work. I think one of the things that we hope to do along the lines is have a, you know, archiving 101 right. for designers about preserving their own work. Um, because as you noted earlier uh, with Gail Anderson, you know, there are all these boxes, but very few archives that can actually take that material. Right. Um, so I hope that they will contribute uh, that work to the People's Graphic Design Archive, who aren't those people who aren't able to, to find a physical archive who will, who will take the work. It's particularly challenging in an era of designers who work primarily digitally and might not save their process as um, fastidiously as those who have mock-ups or like, right. you know, paper prototypes and that kind of thing. So that's super critical. Words of wisdom, Brockett, that you want to throw out there? I would, I would say um, uh, earlier in my career, I had this assumption that to be a, a design researcher or an historian kind of meant like trying to find some part of history that hadn't been talked about before and grabbing it and sort of being like, oh, I'm the one, I'm the one that talked about this thing or this slice. You can see that a little bit in social media too, right? Like, oh, that's the person that did this one weird esoteric thing. But I think there's plenty of room for people to tell stories through their own truth. So, I mean, a graduate thesis is a perfect example. You know, um, there's nothing worse than when you're working with a student and you suggest a project that's similar to theirs and their light, you know, their lights turn out because they're like, oh, someone already did that thing. And I just want to encourage you, like, do it in your way. Like, tell it through your words, tell it through, let it be your truth. Um, and, and it, you know, it can still be yours. It doesn't have to have already been spoken or already been taken. Everything can be claimed and reclaimed. That's perfect. I love it. That is great. Thank you. 
Well, I just, I want to say thank you for both of you for your time today and for talking to us about this project and, and the and the People's um, Graphic Design Archive. Yes. Uh, before we take off, uh, some um, social media for the People's yeah, Graphic please, Design Archive. Yeah, please, please follow us. On yeah. Twitter, we're People's GD Arc, A-R-C. And on Instagram, we're People's GD Archive. Great. And I'll leave uh, information in the show notes, too, for people to get uh you know to follow those links and whatnot so fantastic um where can people reach out to you individually if they wanted to ask you questions or um talk more about your research we've gone silent yeah. <laughs> we've gone silent in it's part like, i'm not giving out my, my email you know, address are alarms you crazy? just yeah. went off in my head um, <laughs> um so i'm at uh, sandhouse at calarts.edu. Okay. I'd love to talk to you and your listeners. Call me. Here's my phone number. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. I'm brockethorn at gmail.com. And I'd love to um, chat with anybody. Thanks for the generosity of reaching out. Great, great. I, I do appreciate that. I'm sure that uh, my uh, out of my 12 listeners, one of them might want to get in touch with you and, and ask <laughs> yeah, some further I questions. Get it. So, yeah. Completely um, get it. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, I, I think it's great if we can share ideas uh, and get assistance when, when we need that. Uh, as you both know, working on the People's Archive, yes. it's um, it takes a lot of, it, what do they say? It takes a village, right? No, so, it does. And yeah. I and I do want to acknowledge that people have been extremely generous to us, and, and I'm happy to re reciprocate that generosity. Awesome. Well, I appreciate both of you so much for being uh, on this episode of the podcast with me, Andy, and I. Um, and if uh, you have any further questions or direction or anything that you want to offer us as we work towards our research endeavors for uh, redesigning her story, we, we welcome that conversation. Thanks. All right, Sounds like a great Thank project. You. Yeah, good luck. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great afternoon, great evening. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us for this episode. The Design Dedux podcast can be found at designdedux.com. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-D-E-D-U-X.com, where you can listen to the podcast or watch the video version of the podcast, as well as find links to the guests and the topics discussed during each episode. The Design Dedux podcast can be found on most podcast listening platforms. You can join us on social media through Instagram and Twitter via at design underscore dedux on Facebook as Design Dedux Podcast and join us on YouTube at Design Dedux for video versions of each episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash design underscore dedux. Once again, thanks for joining us and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.